0: Learn more at marines.com.
1: You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast, and here's your host, ed mcgrogan hey everyone thanks for coming back to tennis.com podcast this week i'm here with once again pete Bodo, steve tigner i'm ed mcgrogan getting together february 12th in the midst of a, a pretty busy week um we're gonna get to that with this week's events um i wanted to start though by uh, P asking you for your thoughts on um, on Nadal last week in particular his, his loss in the final uh, I wanted to get your perspective on it you know what we saw in Vina del Mar I think when I was watching it you know the crowd met that result with almost a near silent shock just about you know what happened Nadal losing in the final to basically a journeyman that most tennis fans probably wouldn't have even heard of before this week you know, pundits afterward, I think a lot of them have kind of put it in proper perspective. But I don't think there's any denying that there's still that little, that huge surprise element to it. That, you know, Rafi Andal losing to Horatio Zabalos.
0: That's, that's a jarring sense, no matter the circumstances at all. Well, I suppose, but there really are two levels to this. I think the first level is that exactly that. Well, no, let, let me put it this way. The first level really is here's a guy who takes off seven months. He comes back and he gets to the final. And in the singles and doubles, Uh, you know, I mean, that's actually a pretty good comeback effort, I would say. So that's number one. That's independent in and of itself. Okay, now second level, it's a shock because people expect Rafa the, you know, the quote, king of clay. I mean, has anybody ever I – And mean, we were all calling him the king of clay now. I mean, you know, a year ago, five years ago, I wouldn't wouldn't have dreamed of using that terrible cliche, but somehow it fits the guy. He's the king He's of clay. He's probably earned it, yeah. I so, you know, so, so there's that. I think the interesting thing to me is how Nadal receives this. I mean, you know, what was Nadal's reaction to losing to Zabalos? And what was he thinking and feeling during that match? You know, it was a long match. Not a lot of breaks, a tough match, a tense match, the kind of match you can't duplicate in practice. So, was he out there thinking about it? Was his knee hurting? Was he thinking about his knee? You know, uh, what's he going to walk away from with this? Is he going to feel my, you know, invincibility has been dented? Look, I mean, I doubt it. The guy has taken plenty of losses in his career. So, you know, that's going to be the key, though. How Nadal, you know, takes it to me. Going forward, for him, it's going to be how he felt about this. Did he did he feel in his heart that this was a big success? I still,
1: yeah, and I still don't. Looking at what Nadal said afterwards, I, I still don't think it was it was particularly clear that one way or the other that you know Rafa thought this was a, an unqualified success despite not winning the title, or that he still has a long way to go. I still think we see those mixed messages kind of coming back. From that camp, which I know you've talked about before, so well, what you got to
0: remember with him though, he's he is a pessimist. He's a realist slash pessimist. He's never he's always said like even he, his never, saying, praises you know, no, he history, never praises himself. No, he never praises himself. He's always talked about the other. Oh, how am I going to beat Roger? You know, Roger's the greatest ever, and then he goes out and he trashes him at Wimbledon. But I mean, I'm, I don't think that's a fake. I don't think it's a put on. He's not sandbag. I think he really is. That he's a very cautious. Semi pessimistic guy, you know, all my world's going to fall apart any I minute. Mean, and it's like it goes in hand in hand with his OCD kind of behaviors, you know, the water bottles, you know, the constant twitchiness and everything else. So, you know, you don't know what's, what's going on in the guy's head. He's, he's a little bit of a different breed of cat.
1: Anything you want to add, Steve, to that point? Um, you know, I think also we're, we're going to find out a little bit more, and I'll get into this with our next point about his schedule. We're going to find out more pretty quickly with Rafa as he plays. Um, I guess we'll get into that right now he's going to play brazil this week and immediately after that he's gonna play first of all singles and doubles this week gonna play in acapulco the week after come right to the u.s no short thing go right to msg play an exhibition there this mm. goes right up against indian wells at the moment miami and then that all abuts right against where rafa wants to start peaking in monte carlo into the clay season there so it, this is a, a a very ambitious schedule, I think, considering what we've been how many tournaments he's missed over the past seven months. Yeah,
2: the schedule seems to have grown as as the months have gone on gone on. He was gonna come back and play Acapulco, then they added Vinnie Del Mar, then they added Brazil. And, you know, then he's at Madison Square Garden. I, I wouldn't say it was too much, the three clay events, because they're fairly quick. There should you know they'd be four matches each, they're two fifties. Um alone, except that until he said that he's 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 determined to continue to play on hard courts the way he always has. I had assumed, I think with a lot of people that he was going to cut back on hard courts, but he, you know, his latest thing is he says he's not going to, but you put that together with going to Indian Wells and so far at least he's on the list for Key Biscayne. Um, it seems like a a lot to jump back into if you're really worried about your knees, you know, we'll see how it goes. I'm sure if something goes wrong, he'll, he'll cut down, but, um, but also watching that final against the bios, it was a tough match and I, I was thinking during the match, you know, is this a little bit more than Rafa and and Tony wanted right away Mm -hmm. as far as work on the knees? You know, it was, it was a, that was a tough one. So, um, so we'll see. Also, he's playing with David Nelbandian this week, which is interesting He's got this this little mini
1: doubles tour going on with a rotation of partners. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, I'm not sure. Is um, is there a week right? Let's say he plays Miami. Is there a week right after Miami to um, the clay season? Do you know if that's 100 percent? Yeah.
2: Um, it's a little a short break, and then he goes to Monte Carlo. So you know, he's all set all the way to Wimbledon at this point with a full schedule. You know, so
1: yeah, and, and of course it's. It's probably unrealistic to think that in you know necessarily we're talking about these month-long worth of tournaments that he would necessarily go deep in every one of them so it's not as if it's a, it's a guarantee that he would be playing four straight weeks essentially of hardcore tennis there so that's mm-hmm. that's the kind of what we're left to uh think about when nadal this week in, in his second tournament back in seven months
0: hey he may bring us back to the point where we have like a real tennis season and an off season because you know he if he does this and he quits after the US open, <laughs> you know yeah. says I gotta rest my yeah, knees right. and I gotta rest my knees. Who could blame him? You know, I mean granted he missed Australia, but the next year, basically if he did that, the next year he comes back, plays from Australia through the US open says, Okay, thank you very much. Well it is a little strange
2: right now he's saying that the doctors are telling him that the pain is still going to get better over the next month, he's still going to have pain, but even during that time, he's going to be playing. So mm-hmm. I guess he feels like he really wants to get back, get back out and play. That's
1: going on, you know. Like I said, this week, Rafa in um, Sao Paulo. Um, this week's also fairly busy, you know, across the board, really. Uh, the women in Doha—it's a, you know, as strong a field as you're going to see. And we found out—I didn't know this before—there was a wire posted on it that um, any number either Azarenka Sharapova or Serena could end up with a number one ranking after this week's events depending on the results. And also, you know, interesting um, other tournaments going on, Feder plays Rotterdam, um, San Jose also in its final edition, this year we'll get into that in a little bit. Rotterdam is, I think, usually, you know, certainly the strongest of these three men's events here, um, but circumstances I think may dictate otherwise this season. So. You know, this week, I guess, what's, what's what, in your opinion, is the thing I guess most uh, most significant going on
2: right now. I would say I'm looking at the women's tournament because it's a big 64 draw with nine of the top 10, so that's a pretty big event. Um, you know, not a not a, a mandatory event, but but close enough. Um, and if Serena is okay, you know, with her ankle, and she could end up playing Maria and and Azarenka. Um, Again, I think an Azarenka-Serena final, if that happened, that could have some significance because this is the time of year last year where Azarenka really got on a roll. She's won the Australian Open. Serena's taken a loss now, but she obviously she beat Azarenka five times last year. So that's sort of an interesting look ahead if they were to play in the final for the year coming up between those two. And it's really –
1: I don't want to take anything away from Sloan Stevens, but it's really two times this year where we could have seen – serena play azarenka mm-hmm. first off in sydney where azarenka um withdrew before that match and then in a in a way serena kind of did the opposite with with her injury going down to sloan stevens in there and that would have been the semifinal there so mm-hmm. that that is sort of unresolved territory at this
0: point even they are ducking each other <laughs> <right>. <laughs> what
1: what about you pete i mean of the men's events me let's talk about that you know you have Rafa down in Brazil continuing the comeback? You have fairly strong field in Rotterdam and you have the San Jose event that is kind of its its a swan song. You know, what would interest you of those three?
0: Well I think I think the uh, Rotterdam and Rafa's comeback are, you know, a bit of a wash. Rafa's comeback is more important, clearly, you know. I mean, you know, hopefully does well. And Rotterdam, but Rotterdam, you got to figure out. If Federer's playing, it's indoors. It's pretty fast. He's going to win. You know, and Tonga, Tonga's out already. Sanga, one of the, yeah, one of the few guys who could beat him. To,
1: already went out to a local so guy. Actually, that's stuff. Yeah. So,
0: in a sense, I mean, in terms of the big picture, I think what's really significant is San Jose's last tournament this year because, uh, you know, this, is, this was the second oldest tournament in U.S. history after the US Open which began in 1881 and this tournament essentially has you know it, it was originally the California State Championship then it became the Pacific Coast Championship which loosely was still was still a California championship but they they opened up the field I guess to the entire Pacific Coast, and that was at their championship. And, and then some morphed over the years, ultimately became San Jose. The golden era was when it was in uh, San Francisco at the Cow Palace, which is a big old, famous auditorium. You can go there and see the Jefferson Starship, uh, airplane <laughs> rather, the Grateful Dead, uh, people like that. And, you know, it, you know, there was a great vibe. McEnroe won it five times. Everybody who's anybody won, won that tournament. So it's a great, great tournament that we lost. And even more disturbingly, the other tournament, the Pacific Southwest Tournament, also, which grew up as a rival to the Pacific Coast champion international in International PCI. The, the two of them together, that, was, that became the LA tournament, which in its last iteration was the Farmers Classic, which went belly up a year ago. So we lost two enormous tournaments, the two big West Coast tournaments, California being such a hotbed of American tennis. We've lost the two big tournaments, each of which was almost a century old or more than a century old. And they're gone. You know, uh, San Jose is going to be folded into Memphis. So... You know, you can forget the whole West Coast tradition. And uh, the Pacific South Southwest has gone to Bogota, Colombia.
1: I want to get your maybe historical thoughts on that in just a second. But actually, one thing I wasn't sure of for um, at least the Pacific Coast, you know, that's an indoor event now and it hasn't for a long time. Was that always an indoor event to your knowledge? Um, no.
0: Originally, when it was held at the Berkeley Tennis Club and a number of other venues, the Del Monte Hotel originally. In fact, there's kind of a controversy there because when the tournament, the Del Monte Hotel, near San Francisco, had had the tournament, declared the winner of the state champion of California. A bunch of people from Los Angeles popped up and said, hey, wait a second. What do you mean state champion of California? You wouldn't even know about this. So that's how it all began. But it was originally played outside, Berkeley Tennis Club. The open era, once again, the the change to open tennis in 68 had a huge impact upon that tournament because suddenly then then it had the impetus, it had the pressure to go professional. It had been a very sweet California tournament held at the California Tennis Club, the Berkeley Tennis Club, outdoors, you know, did not draw huge, huge crowds, but it was what it was. Then when the game went pro, suddenly the impetus, the challenge was there. Okay, you're going to become a pro tournament. Then you're going to start paying money. You're going to, have to start getting, selling a lot of tickets, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Right. What do you uh, kind of remember about San Jose? Yeah, it's su-
0: it is surprising
2: um, to me that, you know, California is such a big, big part of tennis. A lot of people play tennis there that you they can't that the state can't seem to, um, whether it's just a promotion or what can't, can't keep one of these tournaments alive. Um, both of those events, also the, the women's tournament in San Diego folded and has come back. Um, Indian Wells has struggled and now it has a billionaire owner. So it's, it's doing well. I mean, it does well, but it is, it's had its struggles as well. But, but, um, but I guess it's just surprising to me that there can't, that there, there can't be a, um, a tournament. Maybe I'm still thinking that the U S is bigger in the, as far as as far as tennis goes around the world, they're all you know. Instead of this tournament in California, there's going to be Memphis, and there's also going to be a new event in Rio, a 500 level ATP event, which sort of shows the trend of of the sport leaving the U.S. for the rest of the world. Now South America is the next, you know, I think the next um, growth area. That's where I
1: wanted to get really with this. Is you know we're losing, as you said, Pete, these two events in the past year, um, and among others that have, have been kind of volatile around the U.S., um, you know, events have moved from New Haven down to Winsalem, and events have gone off the calendar. And at the same time, I noticed that, you know, certain events, of course, the bigger ones, Indian Wells now is is trying to kind of flex its muscle, it has that financial backing now of Allison, and is, is really looking to catapult itself beyond almost any map any Masters event. That's kind of still an ongoing situation. And you also have, you know, the U.S. Open slams like that. The slams seem to still hold a monopoly really on the players and and they can almost print money. And that's also become an issue of, you know, how powerful they are. But when you compare these have and have not tournaments in here and it all kind of, you're seeing what's going on in the U.S. here, you know, what that's kind of the present. What, what do you think is really the future of, of tournaments here in the U.S.? Is, is it kind of a irreversible decline of, of interest that, you know, a lot of these sort of built there, built themselves during tennis's golden era here in the States? And really, it's just kind of we're going to more emerging markets now and, and it's kind of just a new time for, for tennis.
0: Well, I think everyone's following the money there's no question about that and look let's face it the market decides these things you know they if they could have if they could have if San Jose could have been attracted to the kind of fields and crowd that they that they needed and wanted they would still be around you know it's just unfortunate reality one of the interesting things though is that some of these first wave promoters who built these events from the ground up are actually leaving the game. Unfortunately, many of them were dying. Guys like Paul Florey in Cincinnati, Barry McKay, the former owner and tournament director in San Jose. And so this whole first wave of tournament directors who had great relationships with players, so they were able to keep like a San Jose going because they had, Barry McKay had good relationships with Pete San... You know. You know, they they wanted to play San Jose because they like Barry McKay, and so all these things, these are all changing. Things are going more to the entertainment industrial complex essentially, and that kind of hurts tennis, I think, because the relationship, you know, tennis remains in some ways, despite these massive changes, a relationship based game. So now it's really become more about, you know, money talks, BS walks, and so they're just they're just following the money. Yeah. Also, Jack Kramer's
2: son was the tournament director in LA. Right. He he was a similar situation as what you said. Also, there's the there's the push still in in tennis and you know WTA and ATP for towards um, China towards towards Asia. That that's still a big push. They're still hoping for a, you know for a Chinese man to become a star, just because they think that that's you know that's where sponsorship dollars will be in the future. And I think that's you know that's. What they look at as much as anything else, and we
1: see this with a good. I think a good example is kind of the the WTA Championships. This is a tournament that's really literally been following the money, as you said, for the past few years. It's established kind of a nice little foothold, I think, in Istanbul, and then and we're are you know reading about you know where's where's the top bid going to go next, and and that does seem to be, you know, making the actual tennis kind of the you know it, it's an element of it, but it's not the whole element with it. It's what is the you know, overall, you know, net effect of, of this tournament. You
2: yeah, yeah, you also don't, Pete's, you know, Pete says it's a relations, relationship sport, which is right. And I think it's also, maybe it's underrated that it's an event sport. Grand slams are as popular as they are because they're identifiable events. They've always been there. Wimbledon's always been at that spot. And that's not true of something like the WTA championships. That's what you sacrifice when you when you go for the money. You sacrifice that identifiable event that players want to win that that fans identify with. Yep. Any final thoughts before we uh, pack up shop here, and we'll
1: be in touch next week again, um, as the the Rafa return continues, among other things. I think next week slows a little bit in terms of um, schedule afterwards. So unless uh, Doha ATP, perhaps, or Dubai, are in, that's coming
0: up. That's coming up. That's going to be the big one, I think.
2: Yeah,
1: and um, and it is a you know fairly short month. You forget that. We're basically halfway through February. It's you know, a short month, of course, and you go right into Indian Wells at that point. So we will um, catch up next week to see what happened this week, of course, and uh, look ahead a little bit. So um, Steve Tigner, Pete Bodo, Ed McGrogan, thank you again, Tennis.com Podcast.
0: You've been enjoying Tennis.com's
1: weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.